range from someone needing shelter to someone who is genuinely in fear for their life. Uh, and as far as anonymity, they have a choice. They can give us their name. They don't have to. We have women, have had women between the ages of 19 and, the, and late 60s. I think it's really important that everyone realize that domestic abuse affects everyone. She left him because he went back to his old ways, and she eventually actually became a counselor at the Women's Center. He was both emotionally and physically abusive, threatened to kill her several times. To see her when she first joined us, her demeanor, her posture, her whole face, to now, it's incredible. I can hear it from the survivors, but when I see it, and it's just I get a little bit of a trigger from that. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rosie Santulli. Rosie has been involved with the Women's Center of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania for 10 years. The Women's Center of Montgomery County is a domestic violence service. After a long career as a research scientist in both academia and with Johnson & Johnson, she felt it was time to rediscover herself. She had read a book entitled Halftime by Bob Buford. Halftime focuses on transitioning in the second half of our lives And so she decided to transition her life from success to significance. Because of her passion for women's issues, Rosie was drawn to the Women's Center, where she became a domestic violence hotline counselor. She soon moved into additional roles, including facilitating support groups, court accompaniment, outreach and education, peer counseling, and serving as a board of directors member and finally becoming the co-president of the Women's Center Board. Rosie's part of a team approach and has benefited from the network of amazing volunteers and staff who are integral in carrying out the mission of the center. And that mission is freedom from domestic violence and other forms of abuse. Rosie feels the most gratifying aspect of her volunteer experience at the center is the growth and evolution of survivors who take that difficult first step to contact the center. Rosie, welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. I'm excited to speak with you today. Thank you so very much for having me, Bill, and for all that you have done to reach out to others and educate them about this really important issue. You are truly making a difference and honoring your daughter, Kristen, who, as we know, tragically was killed 15 years ago and murdered by her ex-boyfriend. Your resilience is amazing, and I want you to know how proud I am of being part of the Women's Center of Montgomery County proud of who we help, proud of all the volunteers, staff, and our board who really work together um, to help people. Well, there's a lot to feel proud about. You're absolutely right. And we're going to talk about most of those. So, uh, yeah, you know, and and honestly, I have been so taken. It's now 16 years uh, since June 3rd, 2005. So, yeah, another year just passed on June 3rd. But but I have been just so amazed at all the people, you included, that I've met over the years. And it's really, it's the, it's, I'll stick my neck out and say the finest group of people I've met in my entire life. I mean, it's, I'm just so taken. 
by the, the, the generosity and the heart of, of all these people and, and then add that to their strength and their knowledge and experiences. So, so I feel, uh, I, I'll say I feel blessed, I really do, to meet people like you. And, and today we're meeting for the very first time. You know, one of the things I wanted to start off with, Rosie, was to say that I was surprised you began at the Women's Center as a hotline counselor. And I say that because if I were to walk the path that you have walked over the last 10 years with the center, I don't think I would ever start there. I might end there after feeling like I had loaded myself up with all this knowledge. But to be the person fielding those calls, I mean, it amazes me because it's such a consequential responsibility to take on, especially when you started. So I have to ask, how did you know you were ready to do this? You know, I really didn't know. I don't think anyone really knows. And it really isn't until I was in the office and actually took some calls that I realized how important our work is and that I would actually benefit from this opportunity. And I have to say, we couldn't do this without each other, the other staff and volunteers. If you don't know an answer to something, there's always someone you can go to for help. No one has all the answers, though, unfortunately. There are those volunteers, I have to mention, that do all the training and find out, you know, this isn't for me. And luckily, we have other opportunities for them to volunteer. For me, it was uh, just right away. I Once I took a call, I knew that I could do it. So what kind of training did you undergo? I mean, I think in talking with Maria Macaluso the other day that that to do just about anything there, you start off with maybe 40 hours of training. Yes. And then you train in the specific area you want to volunteer in. Would that sound right to your experience? Yes. I had in-person training, probably more than 40 hours, and it's based on a guideline set by the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Then you actually take an extensive test, like 100 questions that you have to pass. Finally, you go into an office for, and this is all pre-COVID, or a practicum where you listen to experienced volunteers and staff field calls on a speakerphone, and then you start to field calls on a speakerphone and get input from others. After that, every year, we have to take an additional 12 hours of training. Um, it can be an online training, or our center actually offers workshops, enrichment workshops and training workshops. I recently attended workshops on child-mandated reporting, setting peer counseling guidelines, and even how to work through a potential suicide crisis. Oh, my. So. Well, that is amazingly extensive. I'm very impressed by that. I'm just curious now. So for hotline counseling, things like that, I mean, I would imagine, and this just occurred to me right now, that there may be some play acting calls or something like that, I guess. I mean, they can't just train you and then put a headset on you, do they? No, during our training, we do go through different scenarios and we take calls and it's it's actually very educational because one of the things you have to realize is if you get a, like watch for your pronouns, don't assume that the abuser is of the you know opposite gender. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that you learn about yourself when you do those type of calls. Some yeah, of I, your, I would fall into that trap. Some no of your prejudgments it. you make. So yes, yes, we definitely do role playing during the training. And we actually continue uh, to do it throughout our training in our, I think at least in our office, I, I volunteer out of the Bryn Mawr office and we often go through calls and what, what we would do. So definitely. That's, that's great. That's great training. So when you, when you fielded these incoming calls, 
Did you have, I've thought about this over the years. I'm surprised it's taken me so long to actually ask somebody. Well, of course, you're the first real hotline person that I had such access to. But but do you have some kind of a, a computer screen or sheets of paper that has a decision tree? Like start with this and go to this. And then if they go this direction, follow that part of the tree. And I mean, how, do, how does that work? Really not at all. I mean, you maybe in your brain have a decision tree, but... That may or may not work, you know, depending on the type of call you get. You have to realize that, first of all, just when you think you've heard everything, you hear something new that just astounds you. But our calls can range from someone needing shelter to someone who is genuinely in fear for their life, stalking issues, legal questions, how to get a protection from abuse order, financial issues, custody, and, and even more. So a decision tree certainly does not work most cases. So if someone called you, let me just pick one of those. If somebody called you and they feel they're pretty darn sure because they look behind them that they have a stalking issue taking place. Where do you go with that? Well, we've been trained and we have resources. We actually have a stalking tough, to be honest. That's a tough one because typically sometimes the police are too busy to really do anything about it and it doesn't fall under a protection from abuse. But we do have a sheet of paper which tells them to report all of their stalking incidents and kind of start building a case for it and eventually get the police involved with it and say, hey, this is what I've been dealing with. Uh, Maybe take pictures. So that's something different. Every call we have, we have to kind of go into our brain and say, sometimes it's hard. What resources do I have for that at that moment? And we also then I can... If I'm not sure, I can call someone. I can call our volunteer coordinator and say, hey, I'm a little stuck here. So again, that teamwork is really important. Now, when you handle these calls, they're anonymous, at least going in, yes. right? If the pe- but you know what the most important aspect of the call is? And it all, it, I think every counselor makes this mistake. Get their phone number as soon as possible and see if it's okay for us to call them and leave our name. Because right. it always happens. It's happened to me once where you get someone on the phone and all of a sudden they hang up for some reason or something happens or you, and you don't know how to reach them again. So they have, and as far as anonymity, Mm. they have a choice. Um, They can give us their name. They don't have to. It's really up to to them. Um, Most people will give us their name. We find there are a few that won't, but most people, but once they are in contact with us, they're, we're bound by confidentiality. I mean, we make that very clear, you know, once you call us, we are in a confidential arrangement. Nothing you say goes outside of the woman's center. Do you yeah. record those calls? No. In fact, um, no. Even some of, I've done okay. some Zoom peer okay. counseling, and we have a very highly encrypted Zoom account. No, we would never record a call. So I would imagine some of the calls that you've received are actually abuse situations that are active. I mean, they're happening. Have you ever had one where the abuser has done something and is still in the house and now you're getting this phone call? I mean, you were like right there. You're, you're practically a night. Well, you are like a 911 at that moment. You know, it's extremely rare for someone to call while the abuse is happening, mainly because that presents an extra danger for them knowing. Right. And, to them, sure. and they may Here's not have access to our number that easily. Hopefully yes. they know to text 911 or what we also suggest is that they text a friend with a code word, basically saying, call the police Mm. now, you know, so we suggest that. There are certain cases when the police go to a domestic and they perform 
and I know you're aware of this, the lethality assessment program. And yes. so yes, they're, exactly. they go there and they ask a series of questions and based on how they answer these questions can assess that they may be at risk for lethal violence. At that point, they would call our organization after getting permission and we follow a very specific protocol at that time because we don't want to waste time. We just want to get the person into services and find out how they answered mm-hmm. the questions. And all, But at that time, they've already removed the abuser, at least from the room, sometimes from the house. But it is rare that when mm-hmm. it's just a person and the abuser that they would call us. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that, that definitely makes it easier, easier for them and easier for you taking those calls. Uh, I'll switch to a different subject. I saw in your bio that you continue to facilitate support groups. So who is in those groups typically? Oh, there are so many different women. We have women, have had women between the ages of 19 and the and late 60s. Women with no children, young children, grown children, and various educational backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, women of different cultures, different ethnicities, women who have left the abuser and women who remain with the abuser. I think it's really important that everyone realize that domestic abuse affects everyone. These women are very diverse, but unfortunately they are bonded by a very similar life experience, you know, related to power and control. Yeah, I would imagine in those groups too, that the people in the groups probably help the other people in the groups. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a sisterhood in a way, aren't they, in well, some way? One of the most gratifying aspects of the group, which I didn't realize, is that many of these women have become friends. Like you said, they oh. they <laughs> go, go on walks together. Oh, I um, love that. They go to a play together. And they'll even call each other um, when they're having a specific issue. And their friendship goes beyond the abuse. And it's just heartwarming to me every time. Yes. And, and it keeps happening. We're like we'll be in group because now we group do the group by Zoom, and they'll say, "Here, I'm putting my number in the chat room. Please call me, or I'm going to reach out to you." And they follow through. Oh, that's great. So you've kind of talked about some of the subjects that you cover. Do some maybe success stories come to mind? And and I want to preface that by saying, measuring success, even in terms of a little progress, is still success. It's very few people are going to go from having maybe years of being abused and, and dealing with something and maybe leaving the house and then coming back to the house and all that. But but what are some of the successes that you think back and say, wow, you know, I was I was impressed when that happened? You know, I was just talking uh, about this with I have, I have a wonderful co-facilitator, so I have to mention her because we really work well together. And, and I think it's important to have two people be co-facilitators or support group. I'll start with a a 19-year-old who came to the group. She was a college student. Her boyfriend was super controlling about everything and isolated her. But it actually, he at one point became physically abusive and and actually hurt her pretty badly. And she came to us. He apologized like crazy and actually went to a batterer's program. And she went back to him and she joined our support group. Long story short... She left him because he went back to his old ways, and she eventually actually became a counselor at the Women's Center. Oh, wow. I love that. And another story is, and I and I won't tell them all because they're actually, it just when you think about it, with all the horrible stuff you deal with, these are the things that get you through, you know, why you are in this kind of a volunteer life right now. Uh, another woman had a young child, and she came to us while she was filing for the protection from abuse. 
he was both emotionally and physically abusive, threatened to kill her several times mm. and bragged about all these guns he had. He had several guns displayed. I actually went to court with her during the PFA hearing, and which was kind of interesting. But she did join our support group and was with the group for a couple of years. You know, it wasn't easy for her. She left her husband, but sharing custody was extremely difficult for her. You know, entrusting him, you know, the court entrusting him with this young son of hers. She also struggled through a lot of financial issues. But uh, we saw her growth over the years. She became more and more confident as she was away from him. And she worked kind of together with us and through her own strength, through issues. She no longer comes to the group. Her divorce was recently finalized. She actually texts us with a great hooray. I mean, it's, it's maybe sad to se- celebrate divorces, but we do at our support group, actually. We've, we've celebrated a few divorces with cakes you know, when we were in person. Um, she's engaged now, has a full-time job, and her, the man she's with yeah. seems amazing. Uh-huh. And she always expresses gratitude to us. But again, I have to really emphasize, it's the survivors that do the hard work. Glad to hear and, that. And one last person who I I always think of, she's still with the group. She joined us in her 60s, and she was married for over 30 years. And she she had a full-time job, a very uh, successful woman. But when she joined the group, she was given an allowance. During the group, he texted her constantly. He texted her constantly. It was mostly emotional abuse. Mm. He would just yell at her all night long where she couldn't sleep, and then she had to go to work the next day. But it did rise. You know, there's often escalation of these behaviors to physical abuse. Um, She did get a BFA. She's still in the group, but she did go through a divorce. Sure. She has full ownership of her home now. She never was able to visit her family. He wouldn't allow her. She travels to see her family often now, and she's totally independent. What is amazing about, I wish I I had recordings of her, to see her when she first joined us, her demeanor, her posture, her whole face, to now, the difference is incredible. It's incredible. It's got to be like a a flower that hasn't been watered or seen sun for so long, right? And then she just is, to follow the analogy, just blossoming and... I mean, she still has her struggles. I'm not going to say she... sure. She still has her struggles with with, you know, some with adult children, you know, but she had, like you said, that it never totally ends, but still she is a totally different person now. Yeah. You're seeing the real person. Yeah. She's out of the cave. So that's just wonderful. You know, I, I think about this for, for, for you. And I think about this for other people who do what you do, but I wonder if you've ever reached the point where, where maybe you've told yourself, you know, at the end of some day, you know, this is just getting to be too overwhelming for me. I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Have you ever had that in your 10 years with the Women's Center that you just say it's too intense? I mean, I can just picture some people saying, I just need some time off. Actually, no. And I don't know the reason for that. I think it's because of the group of women in the center that give us strength. I'll tell you, though, that I, I, get, I do get angry. I'll tell you what I get angry about. You, you kind of indicated a little bit that it never ends for these women. I have met so many incredible women. Mm-hmm. And the fact that their whole lives are affected by this, they, the trauma triggers, they never end. I've seen them during the group getting their confidence back. I mean, it is always part of 
who they are and what their families experience. So I think that's really sad and makes me angry. The only time I have a problem, this is interesting, is when I either see a movie where it actually depicts domestic violence because all of a sudden I see what's real. To be honest, I read your wonderful book and that was hard for me. You know, I, 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 I'm sure everyone cries, but it, it puts into reality. I can hear it from the survivors, but when I see it and it, it's, it's just, I get a little bit of a trigger from that. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that happening. Where I thought you might go is that you might see a movie that has domestic violence not portrayed realistically. You know, Hollywood kind of gets in there and and kind of doesn't send it up. I say that because I have I'm not in your league in terms of hearing all the stories I'm sure you've heard over the course of time, but but the more you and I focus on this, study this, talk with people, the more you do see how the patterns work. And you know how the progression works. So there isn't anything you've said so far that I haven't heard many, many times. You know, you do, for instance, like I have a part in the book where I talk about the template that abusers follow. And it starts off with, I'll use the male-female example. It's the, it's the most prevalent. Where this guy is, it's just like a storybook romance. You know, it's just fairy tale. It's just, this guy is like the greatest guy I've ever met great car, lavishes things on me, you know, takes me to places I've never been. All these things are great. Then the isolation, then the threats of violence, then in many cases, violence, and then the sincere apology that's so convincing. And then, you know, all these promises, this will never happen again. This is the first time this has ever happened. If it is the first time with that particular person. Anyway, then it rolls back to storybook romance again. Go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse this time instead of the last place. And uh, maybe if it's bad enough and there's money around, buy you a car or whatever, or maybe an iPhone or whatever that is. Like, oh, God, this guy, you know, we're back to good. This guy's acting so great. But, yeah, I can I, I'm happy to hear that you've never, never been pushed to the point where you say I have to have to stop you know, or completely, or even for a period of time. But, and I also understand from talking with other people at the women's center that it's such a great team and the team keeps the team going. And I've seen that I've done some zoom meetings with you, with uh, some of your groups. And And these women have become my friends. They're, we're at a different (laughs) level. I mean, it's not just through the center. It's, you know, they're invited to my kid's wedding. I mean, it's a whole different, I mean, I feel like I, I know them better than, I know some of the friends I've had for years. So it is, they're a wonderful group of people. Yeah, that's great. And that's another, that's a, that's an unexpected. You know, Maria always talks about, and not only focusing on empowerment of the survivors, but empowerment of the volunteers. And she really takes that seriously. And I think that's a big part of why we continue to grow and love being with the center. She really focuses on the health yes. and welfare of the volunteers. And she actually provides workshops on mindfulness and self-care for the volunteers as well. Yeah, that, that's really, she, she really gets it completely. You know, one of the things that I've run into a few times, and even in the neighborhood I live in, is that there are some, of course, who believe the truth, which is that domestic violence can happen to anyone anywhere. But there's still a large group of people out there who just don't think that domestic violence awareness, understanding applies to them. It's it's as if it doesn't happen in their neighborhood or they don't feel they need to know about it or hear about it. And I mean, it's I've talked with people who will sort of stop you in the middle of it and say, you know, 
I know what you're talking about. We don't live in that kind of an area. Or in some cases, they don't want me to come and talk with the group because, well, you know, the, it's kind of, you know, I, I, I'm sorry about what happened, but, you know, it's, they find a way of saying that it's kind of icky. You know, we don't really want to hear about all that and it's depressing, you know, so it's kind of like, thanks, but no thanks. So for those people who think that doesn't happen where they live or their neighborhoods or where their kids are, what would you say to those people? Well, I would say that they most likely know someone who has been a victim of domestic violence or abuse. I think everyone knows someone. I actually was at a neighborhood party once and was talking about the volunteer work and someone came up to me from my neighborhood about someone in their family. I mean, everyone knows someone. And, you know, if they don't feel the need to hear about it, they're actually part of the problem. Awareness is everything. You know, they call it a dirty little secret. We have to get away from that. That's important. You have to get away from that. I have worked with partners of doctors, lawyers, musicians, you you name it. It happens in every neighborhood. Uh, And when you were saying everybody knows someone, in some cases, a lot of cases, you know someone who's going through it, but you don't know they're going through it. You know the person, you just don't know what's going on inside that house over there. Well, we've had people who have actually said when it came out or that they left, friends have said, well, I'm not surprised. They never said anything during, but just knowing, saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of in, saw how he was treating you. I'm, I'm not that surprised, which is interesting. And well, yeah, I can see how it would be uncomfortable if at the time they felt like maybe that was prevalent, but they didn't ask because that could, that could ruin a friendship, I'm sure. Especially for somebody who's going through it, they don't really want other people to know about it. So if somebody's starting to figure it out, then they avoid, which also then plays into the isolation issue that you talked about earlier. And we've also had, um, this has happened more than once, where someone going through an abusive situation who's married will go to their parents for help and say they Mm -hmm. might need financial help. They might need a safe haven to flee to. And a lot of times, not a lot, but more than it should happen, the parent will say, you know, you got to work on your marriage. You're not the easiest person to live with. You know, you need to, it's like, especially in certain religious situations, the most important thing is to maintain the marriage. And and then the poor person has no one to turn to. They go to a friend, but it really hurts them, you know, because we'll say, can you, you know, talk to your parent and say, well, I've tried and, you know, they just don't get it. They think that we should go to couples counseling or something like that. Yes. And, and oftentimes staying with that same story that you're, I know it's hypothetical, but staying with the same story, you will have, you'll have parents who know the couple and they really like the guy. And that's because over <laughs> at their house, that guy's just terrific. I mean, he's going to get the chair right. for his mother-in-law and he's going to help carry things around and maybe he can cook and he helps out and he he just seems so great and plays with their dog and they can't picture this guy at his own house doing those things that he does there that are domestic violence you know in in all manner of speaking right. I'm curious about one thing and that is that uh, I I at some point in time want to do an episode a podcast episode where I'm speaking with somebody who actually counsels abusers so that's one that I think is really kind of missing from the portfolio. But I would imagine you know, most of your work is with people being abused. But have you had much experience with people who are actual abusers? I have seen them in court when I've gone to court and I've noticed the posturing. And, and what we try to do is be there 
try to keep the survivor as far away from their, because that's just another trauma trigger. And, and, sure. and you can see the nervousness and what they're going through to be around them. So it's tough to be in that situation, mm-hmm. but I've really never had a conversation with one of these abusers. So I, I am actually feel fortunate about that because, you know, you already have a preconceived uh, idea of this person, obviously. So I have to ask you, so when someone goes for a PFA, which is a protection from abuse order, right? Right. Okay. So when someone goes for that, though, they are going, they're having to get with a lawyer or maybe a judge to get this done. But but obviously the abuser is not there at that time, right? Well, first they file what they call temporary order. So they will go to the courthouse and we actually have an office in the courthouse, which is now open, yay, that will help them because it's kind of difficult to even fill out the protect. You have to kind of indicate why you want the abuse. And we have people who really know how to help them in the courthouse and work with them. Good. Most people get the temporary, then they serve the person who is the abuser. And usually there's a court hearing within 10 days. Things are a little crazy now because of COVID and there's a little bit of a backup. When they go to that hearing, if they we usually try to provide them with legal aid or they'll bring their own lawyer. But we have women in the courthouse that are there, not just only to support them, but to help with the process because they will go, if they might go in front of the judge, there is a choice that the abuser can make. The one, you know, he can say, I agree to the terms of the protection from abuse, but I won't be seen as guilty. Mm. So if you go in front of the judge, you're going to be determined as guilty or not guilty. But if you agree, you're saying I'm neither guilty or not guilty. I just agree for, to stay away for however the judge decides. So our people help them with that process and go back and forth and help that. And really help streamline the process in court too. So the person who's being abused gets to the courthouse with help and they get a temporary PFA. What does that actually do? That will, as soon as he served, immediately she is protected. And they will, idea, if he's in the house, they will evict him usually. If that's wow. part of the agreement. They will have him, they will wow, evict him wow, from the wow. house. Really? So, um, but there are some ter- there are some terms that you can sometimes not have that, but usually if they're living there, they're evicted. From and so, so evicted, what does that look like? Does that guy get two hours to get his goodies into a box and walk him to his car? What does that mean? They're, I think they're immediately evicted and then they can get a police escort to come with to them come to take their wow. things out of the house that they might need. Okay. So that's the temporary. Well, yes. Well, that's an immediate, well, temporary. And if, because you want to provide protection as soon as possible. Yes. Because as because sometimes and something we always say, we never know how someone's going to respond to a PFA. You know, some of these people, they don't really care. The hell with it. You know, they don't care. They, they'll totally ignore a PFA. And that's why, you know, if they do go against the PFA, it's now a criminal case. But they don't care if they're going to really hurt the person. And some of these already have legal um, criminal issues already. So we always say, you know, this person better than we do. You have to make sure that you're safe with getting a protection from abuse because the police are going to serve him. So for it to go from a temporary to permanent, I guess you might call it, would that be fair? It's yeah, it's it's based on it. The judge will decide how long. The long, the longest a PFA will last is three years. It can be anywhere okay. from oh. six months to three years, and that's totally up to the judge. So what they have to do is 
appear in court and both met both the abuser and the victim have to appear in court. Okay. You know, we recommend lawyers. It all depends on where they are and you know, if they can afford them, et cetera. And that's when they'll make the determination if the abuser will do an agreement or if they want to actually plead the case in court. Okay. And I was when one of the part of our training is also they they actually take the class to the courthouse during a, the protection from abuse hearings and you sit in the back and the judge is great they know we're there and they they're wonderful. I remember when I was there there was a case where the abuser decided to be his own questioner he was going to be his own lawyer. That doesn't usually work. It out. It did very not well, work it? out well. I mean it was so and and this poor woman was pregnant, shaking. Hmm. It was, and it was like, you know, but it was, it was just, you saw him take on his personality immediately, but that's actually a good training. I have to say, you really learn a lot just by seeing these cases take, you know, go through the process. So I, I would imagine the guy that did that probably thought he was going to control the entire courtroom at this point, right? <laughs> Which yes. is, didn't work, so, didn't work out so well. No, no. The judge is pretty tough. I'll tell you. Well, a, a PFA I'm pretty sure this is the case, but I wanted to hear it from you. Besides periods of time, does that also get down to distance, like within 500 feet? Is that one of those things where it's like you cannot come within this distance of this person? It's actually no phone calls, no reaching out through a third person. And some of them are written a little different. We have cases where the, they may work together, which is difficult. Oh, right. Wow. So that can be tricky, how you deal with the children. So they are pretty specific, but they usually include, you know, even if like just staying away in total, like if you see this person driving by where you live a lot, you can certainly yes. call the police. If they start to call you or text you, you know, you can call them unless it has to do, unless you've have something set up about children. So definitely you want no contact at all. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. I was talking with a detective about a month ago and he spoke about this guy who had a PFA against him. And one of his little little tweaks to bother this woman was that she would put out the trash the night before and it would get picked up at the crack of dawn, but he would come by and put the lid on it, put the trash can up by the house and get in his car and drive away. And it was just, even it wasn't a bad thing to do. It just was not what he was supposed to do, but it was his way of letting her know, I'm still around, you know. I'm still around. I'm still coming by. I came that close. I walked up to the house. Well, we had someone who, she's almost positive her car was vandalized. Mm -hmm. And there were several cars parked, you know, where she was and, and near where she lives. And only her car was vandalized. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. What, a, what are the chances? And you can't prove it, you know, but 
it really set, she was doing really well. And this really kind of set her yeah. back a little bit. And she had a PFA. Yes. PFA and PTSD, I would imagine, along with it, right? Because that, that really, that, that would set her back a long ways. Oh, sure. So I would imagine that, that um, mm. I don't know if you use these, but, but have you used risk assessments and lethality assessment tools in your work and specifically what you do? Well, we obviously work with the police and do that, but I have to say there have been numerous times on a phone call where I've gone through those questions with someone because yes, yes. a lot of people, even though there's know their situation is normal, they don't know how serious it could actually be. Mm-hmm. Well, they can't imagine he might do these, you know, he'll never do that, that type of thing I would think. Right. Yeah. And they, and they don't realize as a threat is really being that serious, you know, just little things like that, or, you know, and this isn't part of the lethality assessment, things change when they have children. It often gets worse once children. So this, like you said, that honeymoon period is great. And then children are brought into the picture. And that's when things often escalate as well. Yeah, that brings a whole new level of pressure in all kinds of areas, no doubt about it. In terms of terminology, just words, how would you differentiate between these terms, sexual abuse versus sexual violence? Do you see a difference? And this is my interpretation. And what I've learned that... Sexual violence is all about power and control. We know that. But it actually, to me, includes sexual abuse, rape, sexual assault, trafficking, human trafficking, really any type of unwanted sexual contact. I think that sexual abuse is a subset of sexual violence. And it's usually defined in terms of someone that's in a position of power authority that takes advantage of that position of power authority for unwanted sexual contact or activity. And I think what's, you have to always remember mm-hmm. that, and I, and I don't know where I would put this, but if you're in an intimate relationship with someone, you still have to give consent for sexual contact. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think it's their role, and but you, there still has to be consent. There's no doubt that some people think that we're in this relationship and, uh, and I own you kind of, and I kind of go where I want to go and do what I want to do. I would think. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't think any of us have had that emphasized enough in our lives that about the consent part, you know, it's like, I'm ready, let's go. And I've had experiences where women may agree to things they don't want to do sexually just to protect themselves. Because mm-hmm. yeah, they don't from want to the consequences. Right. Right. They don't see what's going to happen if they don't. So they hang in there. Right. Yeah. That's, that's sad. That's awful. So if someone were in an ongoing abusive relationship and you were the very first person that person spoke with, what points would you want to make right away to that person? I mean, they have not told their sister and they haven't told their parents and friends, but they, they know you're with the center maybe. And they come up to Rosie and say, look, here's what's going on. If you had only a little bit of time to make your point, where would you go first? Safety, safety, safety. Make sure they are safe and they can stay safe. Then, you know, it's important to be empathetic. And again, let them know what strength it took for them Mm. to actually call me or contact us. There is help and it's not their fault. And then you go through options. I, I have a little saying I say a lot in support groups. I did not cause it. I cannot control it. I will not cure it. I like all three parts of that. The cure it part, I know 
a fairly long list of women who think they can. They switch into this kind of fixer-upper. They go into that mode. You know, he has such great parts, and I, I just need to help him get through the parts that are not working or broken. Or You know, he, he came up in a tough family. You know, whatever those things are, the go-to excuses, whether they're real or not, you know, they, they feel like uh, it's, it's sort of like they're calling in life. And, and they wind up getting caught up in the, in the propeller, you know, with these people. You know, we, we see very little, and we're pretty pessimistic when people tell us that because we know that it's very rare for these men to change. We don't like when like a court says, well, anger management, if anger management does not help, it's like a checkoff to get them, you know, a leaner sentence. Mm-hmm. Also, there are batterers programs and energy. I'm sure you've heard of them and, and they have some success, but the person has to really, I once went to a workshop on one of the batterers programs and I was really impressed because if the person going through the program is not in with it a hundred percent, they throw them out, mm-hmm. you know, you know, they throw them out. But I, I do think you're not going to fix it, unfortunately. You know, even if you have a little new honeymoon period, it's not going to You know, change. in speaking with the executive director of the Women's Center recently, Maria, she made a great point. I, I just thought this was brilliant. And that was, you're right about the anger management part. And that is that it, it's an easy place to kind of park the problem. Oh, he has, he has anger management issues. It's like, okay, does he go to work and beat up his boss? No. I always say that exactly. You know, does he beat up just about everybody in his life? Not really. Does he beat beat his wife? Well, yeah, he does. He might beat his kids and kick the dog too at the house, you know, but it seems like, you know, when he's out there in the world, somehow finds uh, the tools to get out of the room before it gets too bad or whatever has to happen. But so it's not this sort of spectrum of anger management that's we're talking about. A lot of, we also hear a lot of people saying it's mental health issues, that they may have bipolar issue, but they don't recognize it themselves. And they don't seek any type of help. Or if they do, they it does not last yes. long. And so we just stress, you know, your safety and your is most important. If he's not willing to help himself here, you know, I don't know where you can go from that. So that is great for helping helping that person. What would you tell to others? Like what would you what should our listeners do right now to help someone who could be a friend again, a coworker, someone they know on their street, family member? Who's be, who they think is being abused, what should what should they suggest to those people? Where would you direct them first? I mean, it could be could be a hotline or, you know, should they go to a website or go to an app? And where would you send them first? Well, I would say if it's a friend, don't don't be nervous. Yeah, get, get information. It's fine to get information. But first, just talk to them. Let them know you're concerned about maybe what's going on and that you're, you can help them. Yes. Yes. Be a really good listener. Listen, listen, listen. Let them recognize that their relationship is not normal. Because some people get to a mm, point that they mm-hmm. think even hitting is normal in a relationship. That's what that they this do. Is yeah. how everyone treats their partners. Right. And again, it's not their fault. Because again, so many times these survivors say, well, why did I stay? What did I do? And the abuser will often say, well, if you didn't, if you had made dinner on time, I wouldn't behave like that. You know, things like that. I would say, connect them you know, two resources and say, hey, there is help out there. Let them know that there are places they can call and get help. Help them to have a plan ready, a safety plan. I'm sure you know about this. Have that suitcase ready with all your important papers, anything you might change of clothes, 
anything you might need so you can just get out and have a place you mm -hmm. know you can go, you know, a friend's house, a hotel, somewhere. And if they decide not to leave the abuser, please be with them, stay supportive, know that they still can come to you just to talk. And again, focus on their strengths, focus on the positivity. I mean, I think that's really- Yeah, that's great. I mean, being a great listener, a lot of us are not great listeners. And if somebody is your close friend and you find out this is going on, you kind of go from listener to judger to yelling at that person maybe and saying, you know, what, what the hell are you thinking about? You know, why are you hanging around this? I mean, you, so what happens is inadvertently you become almost like another abuser to that person, to their ears, at least you have no intention of being that, but, but you shift into that thing, you bring the house down on of them. It's like, you know, what are you thinking about? Get out of there, make a run for it. And that is a lot to process for somebody who's already dealing with a lot to process. I can imagine uh, in a, in a mother daughter situation or mother son situation, if this were brought, of course, it's the last thing you want to hear about from that person, but you're right. I mean, you have to hang in there. You have to get them to talk. Therefore you have, that's how you become a great listener is to let them talk. There are, there are a lot of people who are not ready to leave. They're not ready to give up that relationship. And you have to kind of like help them talk themselves out of that relationship. And everybody's process is different. Yes. You know, it, it, you know, it, a little steps are really good. It may take three steps forward and two steps back. And that kind of is how it goes. Everyone, some people just have one incident. That's their red line. And similar to the, the young girl I talked to and that I'm, I'm going, that's it. But some, yes. it just really takes quite a while, but they are, I mean, and I've seen it where over time you see small changes and you can survive and live with the abuser. You know, as you can be, we still consider someone living with the abuser as a survivor. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You hope it'll go where, where it'll be the safest place and the happiest place. And, 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 and these situations are so insidious, you know, they, they don't happen in one day. They don't happen in one hour, meaning like the relationship doesn't go from absolutely wonderful to bad in one hour. The, the people who abuse take their time and it's like tentacles wrapping around the other person or a spider web or something like that. By the time that you know it's really happening to you, it's pretty tough to get out of that. And that's why all the coaching is needed. And that's why we want people to call the hotlines and, and get great help from people who actually know what to do, how to help. So there are all kinds of ways that can help a friend, family member, coworker, but still with the intent of helping other people, what do some people do that has not proven to help very much? Which, which I, let me preface by saying a lot of things that if this were presented to me, if my daughter came to me and said, this is what's going on, I would probably make every mistake that you're about to tell me. The worst thing, and we tell everyone this, is to say, why don't you leave? That's the worst thing you say. Why don't you leave or try to force them to leave? That that just turns people away immediately. Um, and also, it's important not to be judgmental about behaviors that they see during the relationship. That's a really important. I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned from the Women's Center is not to be judgmental. Never, never, never confront the abuser. That's just only going to be trouble. That's going to be trouble. Never make them seem like it's their own fault. Uh, again, listen, listen, listen. Just try not to make them think they're making mistakes. Mm -hmm. It's help, not hurt, you know, or talking about them behind their back. You know, you see 
And I think this, you know, why does she stay with him? Like, this is ridiculous. And because they have to know that they can come to someone. And they're embarrassed. That's the worst. When I was saying I get angry, there is an embarrassment about being a victim. Yeah, I, I abuse, believe sad. in all these cases that the person who's being abused, their self-esteem isn't going in the right direction. And to to bring the house down on them, to to uh, tell them they're stupid, you know, don't you see what's going on? I mean, whatever you say, which is a normal thing to probably do, you know, because you're so disappointed in what's going on. But that just decays that self-esteem even more. And their sense of loneliness and isolation just gets worse and worse and worse. And here, it's the last thing you're trying to do. I mean, you're trying to be helpful and you're not helping at all. And I think they do, like during the pandemic, I think it has been difficult because of the isolation. And I can say there's a woman in our support group who felt that she was losing herself. Uh, we, we stopped the support group for a while because of, we weren't sure how to handle this new environment. And, and now we're doing it through Zoom. So she was out one day and feeling sad and she came to our office and on our office door is a little thing about abuse and how to recognize abuse. And she, she almost thought her situation had become normal again. This is my life. And she read that and she immediately got in contact with oh, us again and, and now is participating in the group again. So again, it's like I'm realizing that this is not Yeah, normal. I mean, people, people adapt. You know, you, you adapt, especially if you're in a situation where you don't feel like you can get loose. The other thing that happens, I just want to say, is often they really love this person. I mean, they have a history with them. They've maybe had children. And I think that's one of the hardest parts that they really, and, and they saw their life being kind of a storybook, you know, whatever, you know, every perfect, you know, the holidays, the kids, and it's almost like a grief that happens when they start realizing this isn't what it's going to be. So I, I think that's really hard, getting rid of that emotional and loving bond with this person. You know, like the person they first met. That was wonderful. You said that was Yeah, that's got to be very hard. And, and now isn't. You know, from the out, that's, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I can, I can listen to these different stories you've given us and I can be objective. I don't know the people and I look at it like he's a lot of trouble and the best thing for you is to get away from him. But they have history, like you say, and, and it was good at times, maybe. You know, I don't know if it was a contrived version of good you know, if it was a real version of good, but it's, it's not that anymore. And it's easy for us to look at it and just say, eject, get out of there, live somewhere else, do something else, that type of thing. And it's just not that easy. And, and there was love and there's maybe still some love. It's just, it's, it's just so sad. We have to see it for what it is too. It's, it's a dangerous form of it. Besides the different places we've told people to go, let's say we have somebody who just wants to learn more. What are some powerful resources people can turn to maybe to gain a little more information on dating and domestic violence? You know, where would sort of, sort of like read up on it and kind of get a good foundation about it? I think as far as dating violence, the website loveisrespect.org, it's a project of the National Domestic Hotline and focuses on healthy versus unhealthy relationships. There's tons of resources on that website. Locally, our organization actually has a new teen dating website, which is safedatingnumber4teens.org. And we've actually just started a safe dating teen text line. You just have to text the word chat to 883 641 for domestic violence in general, I would tell people to go to the National Domestic Violence 
website, which is thehotline.org, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence website, pcadv.org, and our website, which is wcmontco.org. And as far as dating hearts, as much as I had a hard time reading your book because emotionally, it has a lot of resources. I think your book is amazing and also is a great resource for especially young adults. Thank you very much. It was definitely written to tell our story, but with a purpose. And it was written with the energy of a novel so that that people would start to read it. And, and it seemed like it's turned out this way, feel compelled to keep going. The chapters are very short. It tells the true story. It moves along, and then it ends up with all the resources that uh, we knew of at that time. There, there are plenty more, but we and we also go through the warning signs. We go through the template that abusers follow. A lot of those different things. So, Rosie, is there anything that you feel I have maybe missed, or you you wish we had talked about today? You wanted to talk about? Yeah, there are a couple of things. First, I really want to emphasize the effect of alcohol. When we go, I think you heard that I've gone to schools in my past and given presentations. We would always do an exercise, fact or fiction. And one statement always, always got wrong was alcohol is a cause of abuse. Mm. A lot of women say, similar to what you were saying earlier, say, well, it's because of the alcohol. He's, I can fix it, you know, or mental health. Again, we know a lot of people that drink too much, and are just happy drunks, you know, let's be honest, they're not, you know, and don't cause abuse. It can be worse during alcohol consumption or, or any other narcotic, whatever, but eventually without the alcohol, it will get there as well. Mm-hmm. So alcohol can never be used in as, as an excuse for abuse. And emotional versus physical abuse is another area I feel strongly. People mm-hmm. kind of de-emphasize emotional abuse. And I, we always give them, it's, it's cliche is that the Bruises from physical abuse go away. The scars from emotional abuse stay with you forever. And that emotional abuse often leads to physical abuse. And people don't realize that things like pinching, pushing, even breaking things are a form of physical abuse. So I wanted to make that clear. And then I wanted to just tell a story. You brought it up earlier and and about people saying it doesn't happen here. We... If we're giving these presentations and to high schools, and now we have quite a program. I have to say our educational program is really expanded and is much broader. It's amazing. But we were going to, they were asked to give a presentation to a school district. I'm not going to name the school district to 11th graders. And the vice principal said, I want to see all your materials before we do it. So we sent the materials and part of what we did was role playing where we broke into smaller groups and talked about scenarios that might happen in a high school with friends and let them talk about it and what would you do as a friend. And in one of the scenarios, there was a slap involved. And the principal's vice principal said, have to remove that because that doesn't happen here. They wouldn't Uh, get it. They wouldn't understand it. It doesn't happen. Okay, we omitted it. At the end of our presentation, we ask for an evaluation of the program. You know, so we give out an evaluation sheets. So we collected them. And there were some disturbing comments, but on one sheet in particular, someone had drawn genitalia all over it and cartoons of fists getting ready to strike female figures. So we actually faxed it back to the vice principal, of course, and just said, you know, you should be aware of this in that group. And she never really, I think she just said thank you, but it just shows that, you know, people don't really don't understand what's going on. 
and that you know, have to take it seriously. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's tough. It, it really is tough. You know, if they haven't had any or many experiences in that area and they don't want that going on anyway, they just block it out. That doesn't happen here. You know, so you don't need to bring it up. And Yeah, but I, I have to say we've had kids come out after our presentations. We always like to include younger people because I could be as cool as I will try to be. But if you get someone in their 20s or a, a college intern, they definitely relate better to them, obviously. And so we've had people after a, and I'm sure this still happens, presentation, ask for more information. We did have one other disturbing incident where someone came to us and he was a manager for a sports team and the coach had been texting him pictures of his genitalia. Mm-hmm. He did, he did and his mother go to the principal. They removed the coach and he was under investigation. But after that event, all the kids on the team started harassing this individual and sending him horrible texts. So the mother and she, and this person came to us very distressed. The mother and he had gone to the principal saying, can we do something? Can I get on a different bus? Can I on the team bus? What can I do? And they were doing nothing. So we actually went to the principal's office, you know, who had invited us and asked about the situation. And he said, well, we're, you know, investigating the coach, so we're fine. And as far as the other thing, you know, you know, the mother is blowing it out of proportion. They're just blowing it out of proportion. So it is, so you, it's, and granted that was hopefully maybe five or so years ago that hopefully people are getting more aware now, but you know, there is still. Yeah, blowing it out of proportion. I, I can't imagine it getting much worse than that. So yeah. yeah, it's kind of, it's a big case of denial. I'm glad you all are, are using every, everything, you know, all your experience and all that and, and bringing it out and helping people and making it more and more accessible. It's obvious through this conversation how accessible all this information and help and hand-holding if it's necessary and a hug and great information. And I'm so impressed by the Women's Center. One thing I have to say is I've been involved with strategic planning and, and now this whole, we're really going beyond crisis. We're going to, you really have to start dealing with financial issues, mental health issues, and housing issues. So I think it's important to realize that it's not just the crisis, it's how these women or men carry themselves through to get, you know, to a better place. Yeah, that's great. It's it's such a holistic approach and yet still with the door open to doing more and more and being right. very realistic about this and and never never saying we've we've got enough, we've done enough. It's it's exemplary. Wow. So Rosie, thank you so much for joining us on this When Dating Hurts episode knowing that you shifted your career from a personal success story to helping real people in need is truly a significant story. And I'm glad you doing all the things that you continue to do. You have my complete admiration because I know that getting into the domestic violence field takes a really special kind of person. You know, it's, it's really just not for everyone. And, and what you've accomplished obviously took courage. It took patience with all the training and everything you've done and, and your commitment and a very unselfish heart. Everything you're doing is clearly making a difference. I can see that in the stories that you've told us today. I'm sure you could tell, we could do three or four more podcasts with great stories that you have. And each one of them is just, just such a great example of the points you're trying to make. And it's been my honor, really my honor to get this opportunity to get to know you today. So thank you so much for giving our listeners and me your time and your life-saving thoughts. It's been fabulous. Thank you. Well, Bill, I can't thank you enough because I can't imagine coming to this point and doing what you do 
with what you've experienced in your life. I am fortunate. I have never personally, I know people have gone through domestic, but never. I mean, one of my biggest fears in life is to read in the paper about someone that I've actually worked yes. with. Um, something I, I get nervous about all the time. So what you are doing is just letting people know we're out there means so much. Because unless people know there's help, they're, they're not going to go for help. And I thank you because I know you've been through quite a journey yourself. And I've listened to some of your other podcasts. And just earlier I said about it's with you forever. I listened to when you were telling about you had a, a recent wedding. Yes, my son's wedding. And the fact that you couldn't have your daughter there, that really resounded in me because here it is 16 years later. And a moment like that, you know, it's where it should be joyful. And I'm sure it was joyful. I get the chills now just talking about that. So again, I can't thank you enough. You have used this horrific incident with your daughter to really help so many people. And, you know, we need people like you. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'm I'm just happy I can help in my way to prevent the next Kristen Mitchell story from happening. But thank you so much. I mean, you've definitely put a lot of thought into this. and, uh, And I can't wait to talk with you the next time. Thank you. Thank you. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.